0: Chapter Fifteen of Addison His Life and Inventions. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nellie Addison His Life and Inventions by Frank Lewis Dyer and Thomas Comerford Martin. Chapter Fifteen. Introduction of the Edison Electric Light In the previous chapter on the invention of a system, the narrative has been carried along for several years of activity after the verge of successful and commercial application of Edison's ideas and devices for incandescent electric lightning. The story of any year one year in this period, if treated chronologically, would branch off in a great many directions some going back to early works, others forward to arts, not yet within the general survey. And the effect of such treatment would be confusing. In like manner the development of the Addison Lightning System follows several concurrent, simultaneous lines of lens, and an effort was therefore made in the last chapter to give a rapid glance over the whole movement, embracing a term of near five years, and including it in its growth both the old word and the new. What is necessary to the completeness of the story, at this stage, is not to recapitulate, but to take up some of the loose ends of the threads, woven in and follow them through, until the clear and comprehensive picture of the events can be seen. Some things it would be difficult to reproduce in any picture of the art and times. One of the greatest delusions of the public, in regard to any notable invention, is to believe that the world is waiting for it with open arms and an eager welcome. The Exact contrary is the truth. There is not a single new art or device the world has ever enjoyed of which it can be said that it was given immediate enthusiastic reception. The way of the inventor is hard. He can sometimes raise capital to help him in working out his crude conceptions. But even then it is frequently done at a distressful cost of personal surrender. When the result is achieved, the invention makes its appeal on the score of economy, of material, or of effort. And then, labor often awaits, with crushing and tyrannical spirit, to smash the apparatus or forbid its very use, where both capital and labor are agreed that the object is worthy of encouragement, there is the superior indifference of the public to overcome, and the stubborn resistance of the pre-existing devices to combat. The years of hardship and struggle are thus prolonged, the targeting poverty and neglect too frequent bitters to invent a scanty bread. And one great spirit after another has succumbed to the defeat, beyond which lay the procrastinated triumph, so dearly earned. Even in America, where the adoption of improvements and innovations is regarded as so prompt and sure, and where the huge tours of the patent office and the courts bear witness to the efforts of the inventor, it is impossible to deny that the sad truth that, unconsciously, society discourages invention rather than invites it. Possibly, our national optimism, as revealed in the invention, is seeking a higher good, needs some check. Possibly, the leaders would travel too fast and too far on the road to perfection, if conservatism did not also play its salutary part, insisting that the procession move forward as a whole. Addison and his electrolyte were happily more fortunate than other man inventions in the relative cordiality of the reception given them. The merit was too obvious to remain unrecognized. Nevertheless, it was through intense hostility and opposition that the young art made its way, pushed forward by Addison's strong personality, and by his unbounded, unwavering faith in the ultimate success of his system. It may seem strange that great effort was required to introduce a life so manifestly inconvenient, safe, agreeable, and advantageous, but the facts are a matter of record. And today, the recollection of some of the episodes brings a fierce glitter into the eye, and keen indignation into the voice of the man who has come so victoriously through the door. It was not a fact at any time that the public was opposed to the idea of electric light. On the contrary, the conditions for its acceptance had been ripening fast. Yet, the very vulgar of the electric art light made harder the arrival of the incandescent. As a new illuminant for the streets, the art become familiar, either as a direct substitute for the low gas lamp along the sidewalk curb, or as a noble form of moonlight raised in groups at the top of fluffy towers often a hundred and fifty feet high some of these lights were already in use for large indoor spaces although the size of the unit the deadly pressure of the current and sputtering sparks from the carbons made them highly objectionable for such purposes a number of parent arc-lighting companies were in existence and a great many local companies had been called into being under franchise for commercial business and to execute regular city contracts for the street lining. In this manner, a good deal of capital and the energies of many prominent men in politics and business have been rallied distinctively to support of arc lining. Under the inventive leaderships of such brilliant men as Bruce, Thompson, Weston, and Van Eller, there were a scores of others. The industry had made considerable progress, and the art has been firmly established. Here lurked, however, very rigorous elements of opposition for Addison predicted from the start the superiority of this more electric unit of light and devoted himself exclusively to its perfection and introduction. It can be readily seen that this situation made it all the more difficult for Addison's system to secure the large sum's money needed for its exploitation, and to obtain new franchises of city ordinance as a public utility. Thus, in the curious manner, the modern art of electric lighting was in a very true sense divided against itself, with intense reveries and jealousies which were nonetheless real, because they were but temporary, and occurred in fact where ultimate union of the force was inevitable. For a long period of time, the arc was dominant and superior in the lightning branch of the electric industries, in all respects, whether as to investment, employees, income, and profits, or in the respect of the manufacturing side. When a great National Electric Light Association was formed in 1885, its organizers were the captains of our lightning, and not a single Edison company or licensee could be found in its ranks. I would dare to solicit membership the edison company soon numbering about three hundred formed their own association still maintained as a separate and useful body and the lines were tensely drawn in a way that made it none too easy for the edison service to advance or for an impartial man to remain friendly with both sides but the growing popularity of incandescent lightning the flexibility and safety of the system the ease with which other electric devices for heat power etc could be put indiscriminately on the same circuits with the lamps, in due course render the old attitude of opposition obviously foolish and unattainable. The United States Censor's Office statistics of nineteen o two show that the income from incandescent lighting by central stations had by that time become over fifty two per cent of the total, while that from arc lighting was less than twenty nine and electric power surfaced due to the ease with which models could be introduced on incandescent circuits, brought in 15% more. Hence, 20 years after the first Edison station were established, the methods they involved could be fairly credited with no less than 67% of all central station income in the country, and the proportion has grown ever since then. It will be readily understood that under these conditions, the modern lighting company supplies to its customers both incandescent and arc lighting, frequently from the same dynamo-electric machinery as the source of current, and that the old feud as between the rival systems has died out. In fact, for some years past, the residents of the National Electric Light Association have been chosen almost exclusively from among the managers of the great Edison lighting companies in the leading cities the other strong opposition to the incandescent light came from the gas industry there also the most bitter feeling was shown the gas manager did not like arc light but it interfered only with his street service which was not his largest source of income by any means what did arouse his ire and indignation was to find this new opponent the little incandescent lamp, pushing boldly into the felt of interior lining claiming it on a great variety of grounds of superiority, and calmly ignoring the question of price, because it was so much better. Newspaper records and the pages of the technical papers of the day show to what extent prejudice and passion were stirred up and the astounding degree to which the opposition to the new light was carried. Here again was given the most convincing demonstration of the truth that such an addition to the resources of mankind always carries with it unsuspected benefits, even for its enemies. In two distinct directions, the gas art was immediately helped by Edison's work. The competition was almost salutary in the stimulus it gave to improvements in processes for making, distributing, and using gas, so that while vast economies have been effected at the gas works, the customers has had infinitely better light for less money. In the second place, the coming of the incandescent light raised the standard of illumination, in such a manner that more gas than ever was wanted in order to satisfy the popular demand for brightness and brilliancy, both indoors and on the street. The result of the operation of these two forces, acting upon it wholly from without, and from a rival it was desired to crush, has been to increase enormously the production and use of the gas in the last twenty-five years. It is true that, the income of the central station is now over $300 million a year, and that isolated plant alighting represents also a large amount of diverted business. But, just as shown, it would obviously be unfair to regard all this as a lowest from the standpoint of gas. It is, in a great measure, due to new sources of income developed by electricity for itself. A retrospective survey shows that had the men in control of the American gas-lighting art, in 1880, been sufficiently far-sighted, and had they not taken a broader view of the situation, they might easily have remained dominant in the whole field of artificial lighting by securing the ownership of the patents and devices of the new industry. Apparently, not a single step for that kind was undertaken. No problems there a gas-manager who would have agreed with Edison. An opinion written down by him at the time in Little Notebook number 184, that gas profits were having conferred on them an enhanced earning capacity. It was doubtless fortunate and providential for the electric lighting art that, in its state of immature development, it did not fall into hands of men who were opposed to its growth and would not have sought its technical perfection. It was allowed to carve out its own career, and thus escape the fate that is supposed to have attended other great inventions of being bought up merely for purposes of suppression. There is a vague popular notion that this happens to the public lawyers, but the truth is that no discovery of any real value is ever entirely lost. It may be retarded, but that is all. In the case of the gas companies and the incandescent light, many of them to whom he was in the early days as great and irritant as a rat flat to a bow, emulated the performance of that animal, and spent a great deal of money and energy in bellowing and throwing up dirt in the effort to destroy the heated enemy. This was not long nor universally the spirit is shown, and today, in hundreds of cities, the electric and gas providers are united under the one management, which does not find it impossible to push in a friendly and progressive way the use of both illuminants. The most conspicuous example of this identity of interest is given in New York itself, so much for the early opposition of which there was plenty. But it may be questioned whether inertia is not equally to be dreaded with active ill will. Nothing is more difficult in the world than to get a good many hundreds of thousands or millions of people to do something they have never done before. A very real difficulty in the introduction of his lamp and lighting system by Edison lay in the absolute ignorance of the public at large, not only as to its merits, but as to the very appearance of the light. Some few thousand people had gone out to Mellow Park, and had there seen the lamps in operation at the laboratory or on the hillsides, but they were an insignificant proportion of the inhabitants of the United States. Of course, a great many accounts were written and read, but while genuine interest was aroused, it was necessarily apathetic. A newspaper description of a maxing article may be admirably complete in the South, with illustrations but until some personal experience is had of the thing described, it does not convey a perfect mental picture nor can it always make the desire active and insistent. Generally, people wait to have the new thing brought to them, and hence, as in the case of the Edison Light, an educational campaign of a practical nature is a fundamental condition of success. After a serious difficulty confronting Edison and his associates was that nowhere in the world were there to be purchased any of the places necessary for the use of lighting system. Addison has resolved, from the very first act, the initial central station, embodying his various ideas, should be installed in New York City, where he could superintend the installation personally, and then watch the operation. Plans to that end were now rapidly maturing, but there would be needed, among many other things, every one of them new and novel—dynamos, switchboards, regulators, pressure and current indicators— Fixture in great variety, incandescent lamp, meters, sockets, small switches, underground conductors, junction boxes, service boxes, manhole boxes, connectors, and even specially made wire. Now, not one of these metallic things were in existence. Not any outsider was sufficiently informed about such devices to make them in order, except perhaps the special wire. Edison therefore started, the first of all, a lamp factory in one of the buildings in Menlo Park, equipped it with novel machinery and apparatus, and began to instruct men, boys and girls, as they could be enlisted, in the absolutely new art putting Mr. Upton in charge. With regard to the condition attended upon the manufacture of the lens, Addison says, When we first started the electric light we had had from factory for a manufacturing lamps." as the edency light company did not seem disposed to, to go into manufacturing we started a small lamp factory in Mellow park with what money i could raise from my other inventions or royalties and some assistance the lamps at that time were costing about one point two five dollars each to make so i said to the company if you will give me a contract during the life of the patents i will make all the lamps required by the company and deliver them for forty cents the company jumped at the chance of this offer, and a contract was drawn up. We then bought at a receiver cell at Harrison, New Jersey, a very large brick factory building which, having used as an oil cloth works, we got it at a Great Bargain and only paid us more some damn, and the water gauge, We moved the lamp forks from Mellow Park to Harrison. The first year, lamps cost us about one point one oh dollars each. We sold them for forty cents, but there were only about twenty or thirty thousands of them. The next year, they cost us about seventy cents, and we sold them for forty cents. There were a good many, and we lost more money the second year than in the first. A third year, I succeeded in getting our machinery and in changing processes until we got down so that it cost somewhere around fifty cents. I still sold them for forty cents, and lost more money that year than any other because the sales were increasingly rapidly. The fourth year, I got it down to thirty-seven cents, and I made all the money up in one year that I had lost previously. I finally got it down to twenty-two cents, and sold them for forty cents, and they were made by the million. Whereupon the Wall Street people thought it was a very lucrative business, so they concluded that they would like to have it, and bought us out. One of the incidents which caused a very great cheapening was that, when we started, one of the important processes had to be done by experts. This was the selling of the part carrying the filament into the globe, which was rather a delicate operation in those days, and required several months of training before anyone could sell a fair number of parts in a day. When we got to the point where we employed 80 of these experts, the former union, and knowing it was impossible to manufacture lamps without them, they become very insolent. One instance was that, the son of one of these experts was employed in the office, and when he was told to do anything, would not do it, and Or would give an insolent reply. He was discharged, whereupon the union notified us that, unless the boy was taken back, the whole body would go out. It got so bad that the manager came to me and said, He could not stand any longer. Something had got to be done. They were not only more surly, they were diminishing the output, and it became impossible to manage the works. He got me enthused on the subject, so I started in to see if it were not possible to do that operation by machinery. After feeling around for some days, I got a clue how to do it. I then put men on it I could trust, and made the preliminary machinery. It seemed to work pretty well, I then made another machine which did the work nicely, and then made a the third machine and would bring in yard men ordinary labor laborers etc and When I could get these men to put the parts together as well as the trained experts in an hour, I considered the machine complete. and then went secretly to work and made thirty of the machines Up in a toft loft of the factory we store these machines. And, at night, we put up the benches and got everything all ready. Then we discharged the office boy. Then the union went out. He has been out ever since. When we formed the works of Harrison, we divided the interest into one-hundred shares or parts at one-hundred dollars par. One of the boys were hard-up after the time and sold two shares to Bob Cutton. Up to that time, we had never paid anything, but we got around to the point where the board declared a dividend every Saturday night. We had never declared a dividend when Cutting bought his shares, and after getting his dividends for three weeks in succession, I caught up on the telephone and wanted to know what kind of a concern this was that paid a weekly dividend. The work sold for one million and eighty-five thousand dollars. Incidentally, it may be noted, as illustrative of the problem brought to addison that while he had the factory at harrison an importer and a chinese trader went to him and wanted a dynamo to be run by hand power the importer explained that in china human labor was cheaper than steam power addison devised a machine to answer the purpose and put long spokes on it fitted it up and shipped it to china he has not however heard of it since for making the dynamos addison secured as noted in the preceding chapter the roach iron works on gowork street new york and this was also equipped a building was rented on washington street where machinery tours were put in specially designed for making the underground tube conductor and the various paraphernalia and the faithful john Cruassi was given charge of that branch of production to sigmund bergman who had worked previously with Edison on telephone apparatus and phonographs, and was already making Edison specialist in a small way in a loft on Ooster Street, New York, was assigned the task of constructing sockets, fixtures, meters, safety fuses, and numerous other details. Thus, broadly the manufacturing end of the problem of introduction was cared off in the early part of 1881, the Edison Electric Light Company leased the old B. Shaw Mansion at 65 Fifth Avenue, close to Fording Street, for its headquarters and showrooms. This was one of the finest homes in the city of that period, and its acquisition was a premonitory sign of the surrender of the famous residential avenue to commerce. The company needed not only offices, but even more, such as an interior, as would display to advantage the new light in everyday use, and this house, with its liberal lines, spacious halls, lofty salons, wide parlors, and graceful winding stairway, was ideal for the purpose. In fact, in undergoing this violent change, it did not cease to be a home in the real sense. For to this day, many an Addison veteran's house is quickened by some chance reference to sixty-five, where, through many years. The work of development by a loyal and devoted band of workers was centered. Here, Addison and a few of his assistants from Mellow Park installed immediately in the basement a small generating plant, at first with a gas engine, which was not successful, and then with the Hampson high speed engine and boiler constituting a complete isolated plant. The building was wired from top to bottom and equipped with all the appliances of the art. The experience with the little gas engine was rather startling. At an early period at sixty-five we decided, says Addison, to light it up with the Addison system and put a gas engine in the cellar, using city gas. One day it was not going very well, and it went down to the man in charge and got exploring around. Finally I opened the pedestal, a storehouse for tourists, etc. We had an open lamp, and we, when we opened the pedestal, blow the doors off and blow out the windows and knock me down and the other men for the next four or five years sixty-five was a veritable beehive day and night the routine was very much the same as that at the laboratory in its other neglect of the clerk the evenings were not only devoted to the continuance of the regular business but the house were thrown open to the public until late at night never closing before ten o'clock so as to give everybody who wished an opportunity to see that great novelty of the time, the incandescent light, whose fame had meanwhile been spreading all over the globe. The first year, 1881, was naturally that which witnessed the greatest rush of visitors. And the building hardly ever closed its doors till midnight. During the day business was carried on, on the greatest rush. And Mr. Inzow has described how Edison was to be found there, trying to lead the life of men of affairs in the conventional garb of polite society." instead of pursuing inventions and researches in his laboratory. But the disagreeable audio could not be dodged. After the experience, Addison could never again be tempted to quit his laboratory and work for any length of time. But in this instance, there were some advantages attached to the sacrifice, for the crowds of lying hunters and people seeking business arrangements wouldn't only have gone out to Menlo Park, while, on the other hand, the great plans for lightning New York demanded very close personal attention on the sport. As he was, not only Edison but all the company's directors, officers, and employees were kept busy exhibiting and explaining light. To the public of that day, when the highest known form of the house illuminant was gas, the incandescent lamp with its ability to burn in any position, its lack of heat so that you can put your hand on the brilliant glass globe, the absence of any vitiating effect of, on the atmosphere the obvious safety from fire the curious fact that you needed no match just to light it and that it was under absolute control from a distance these and many other features came as a distinct revelation and marvel while promising so much addition comfort convenience and beauty in the house that inspection was almost invariably followed by request for installation the camaraderie that existed at this time was very democratic, but all were workers in a common cause. All were enthusiastic believers in the doctrine they proclaimed, and hoped to profit by the opening up of the new art. Often at night, in the small hours, all would adjourn for refreshments to a famous resort nearby, and to discuss the events of the day and tomorrow, full of instant excitement. The easy relationship at the time is neatly sketched by Edison, Humorous complaint as to his inability to keep his own secrets. When at sixty-five, I used to have in my desk a box of secrets. I would go to the box four or five times a day to get a secret, but after it got circulated about the feuding, everybody would come to get my cigarettes, so the box would only last about a day and a half. I was telling a gentleman one day that I could not keep a secret. Even if I locked them up in my desk, they would break it open. He suggested to me that he had a friend over on Eighth Avenue who made a superior grade of cigars, and who would show them a trick. He said that he would have some of them made up with hair and old paper, and I could put them in without a word and see the result. I thought no more about the matter. He came in two or three months after and said, How did that secret business work? I didn't remember anything about it. I'm coming to investigate. It appeared that the box of cigarettes had been delivered and had been put in my desk, and I had smoked them all. I was too busy on other things to do notice. It was not uncommon sight to see in the parlours in the evening of Joan Pierre Morgan, Norvin Prane, Grosvenor P. Laurie, Henry Viller, Robert L. Cutton, Edward D. Adams, J. Hoot Wright, E. G. Fabry, Armand Galloway, and other men prominent in the city life, many of them stockholders and directors, all interested in doing this educational work thousands of persons thus came bankers, brokers, lawyers, editors and reporters, prominent business men, electricians, insurance experts, under whose research and in intelligent inquiries the fact was elicited, and general admiration was soon won for the system, which in advance had solved so many new problems. Addison himself, in universal request, and the subject of much adulation, but altogether too busy and modest to be spoiled by it. Once in a while he found it in his duty to go over the ground with scientific visitors, many of whom were formed abroad, and discuss questions which were not simply those of technique, but related to newer phenomenon, such as the action of carbon, the nature and effect of high vacuum, the principles of electrical subdivision, the value of insulation, and many others which, unfortunate to say, remain as esoteric now as they were then, even fruitful themes of controversy. Speaking of those days of nights, Addison says, Years ago, one of the great violinists was Ramony. After his performances were over, he used to come down to sixty-five and talk economics, philosophy, moral science, and everything else. He was highly educated and had a great mental capacity. He would talk with me but i never asked him to bring his violin one night he came with his violin about twelve o'clock i had a library at the top of the house and randy came out there he was in a january humor and played a violin for me for about two hours two thousand dollars worth the front door were closed and he walked up and down the room as he played after that every time he came to new york he used to call at sixty five late at night with his violin if we were not there he would come down to the slums on gowork street and would play for an hour door and talk philosophy i would talk for the benefit of his music henry dixie then at the height of his adonis popularity would come in in those days after theatre hours and would entertain us with stories eighteen eighty two to 1884. another visitor who used to give us a good deal of amusement and pleasure was captain shaw the head of the London Fire Brigade. He was a good company. He would go out among the fire ladies and have a great time. One time, Robert Lincoln, Anson Stager of the Wesleyan Union, interested in the electric light, came on to make some arrangement with Major Eaton, president of the Anson Electric Light Company. They came to sixty five in the afternoon and Lincoln commenced telling stories like his father they told stories all the afternoon, and that night they left for Chicago. When they got to Cleverland, it dawned upon them that they had not done any business, so they had to come back on the next train to New York and transact it. They were interested in the Chicago Edison Company, now one of the largest of the systems in the world. Speaking of telling stories, I once got telling a man stories at the Harrison Land factory, in the yard as he was leaving. It was winter, and he was all in first. I had nothing on to protect me against the cold. I told him one story after the other. Six of all. Then I got pleurisy and had to be shipped to Florida for cure. The organization of the Edison Electric Light Company went back to 1868, but up to the time of leasing 65 Fifth Avenue, I had not been engaged in actual business he had merely enjoyed the delights of anxious anticipation, and the perilous pleasure of backing Edison's experiments. Now active exploitation was required. Dr. Norring Green, the well-known president of the Western Union Telegraph Company, was president also of the Edison Company. But the present nature of his regular duties left him no leisure for such close responsible management, as was now required. Early in 1881, Mr. Gross Vanner, P. Lorry, after consultation with Mr. Edison, prevailed upon Major S. B. Eaton, the leading member of a very prominent law firm in New York, to accept the position of vice-president and general manager of the company, in which, as also in some of the subsidiary Addison companies, and as president, he continued actively and energetically for nearly four years a critical formative period in which the solidity of the foundation laid is attested by the magnitude and splendor of the superstructure. The fact that Addison conferred at this point with Mr. Lorry should perhaps be explained in justice to the distinguished lawyer, who for so many years was the close friend of the inventor, and the chief concern in all the tremendous litigation that followed the effort to enforce and validate Addison patents, as in Edi- England mr addison was fortunate in securing the legal assistance of sir richard webster afterward lord chief justice of england so in america it counted greatly in his favor to enjoy the advocacy of such a man as lorry prominent among the famous leaders of the new york barn born in massachusetts mr lorry in his earlier days of straitened circumstances was accustomed to defray some portion of his educational expenses by teaching music Berkshire villages, and by a curious coincidence, one of his pupils F L. Pope, later Addison partner for a time. Lorry went west to bleeding cancers with the first Governor governor-reader, and both were active participants in the exciting scenes of the Free State War until driven away in eighteen fifty six by many other free soilers by the acts of the broader roughing legislature. Returning east, Mr Lorry took up practice in New York, soon becoming eminent in his profession and upon the accession of William Arden, to the presidency of the Western Union Telegraph Company in 1866, he was appointed its general counsel, the duties of which post he discharged for fifteen years. One of the great cases in which he thus took a leading and distinguished art was that of the Quadruplex telegraph, and later he acted as a legal advisor to Henry Villard in his numerous grandiose enterprises. Laurie thus came to know Addison, to conceive an intense admiration for him and to believe in his ability at the time when others could not detect the fire of genius smothering beneath the modest material of a gaunt young operator slowly finding himself it will be seen that mr lorry was in a peculiarly advantageous position to make his convictions about addison felt so that it was he and his friends who rallied quickly to the new barn of discovery and then to the inventor the aid that came as a critical period. In this connection, it may be well to quote an article with, that appeared at the time of Mr. Lorry's death, in 1893. One of the most important services which Mr. Lorry has ever performed was in furnishing and procuring the necessary financial backing for Thomson, A. Addison, and bringing out and perfecting his system of incandescent lightning, with characteristic pertinacity. Mr. Lorry stood by the inventor through thick and thin, in spite of doubt, discouragement, and ridicule, until at last success crowned his efforts, and all the litigation which had resulted from the widespread infringements of Addison patents. Mr. Lorry has ever borne the burden and heat of the day, and perhaps in no other field has he so personally distinguished himself as in the successful advocacy of the claims of Addison to the invention of the incandescent lamp and everything, here-around pertaining. This was the man of whom Addison had necessarily to make confident an adviser, and who supplied other things beside the legal direction and financial alliance, by his knowledge of the world and affairs. There were many vital things to be done, in the exploitation of the system, that Addison simply could not and would not do. But several fair the wit and humor, chivalry and devotion, graceful eloquence, and admirable equipoise of judgment were all the qualities that the occasion demanded, and that met the exigencies. We are indebted to Mr. Insel for a graphic sketch of Addison at this period, and of the conditions under which work was done and progress was made. I do not think I had any understanding with Addison when I first went with him. As to my duties, I did whatever he told me, and looked after all kinds of fears, from buying his clothes to financing his business. I used to open the correspondence and answer it all, sometimes signing Addison's name with my initial and sometimes signing my own name. If the letter, of course, were pursued, I was addressing a stranger, I would sign as Addison's private secretary, I had his power of attorney, and signed his checks. It was seldom that Addison signed a letter or check at that time. If he wanted personally to send a communication to anybody, if it was one of his close associates, it would probably be a pencil. Memo signed Addison. He was a shorthand writer, but seldom took down from Addison's dictation, unless it was one on some technical su- subject that I did not understand. I would go over the correspondence with Addison, sometimes making the marginal note in shorthand as sometimes Addison would make his own notes on letters, and I would be expected to clear up the correspondence with Addison according to comments as a guide as to the character of answer to make. It was a very common thing for Addison to write the words yes or no, and this would be all I had on which to base my answer. Addison marginized documents extensively. He had a wonderful ability in pointing out the weak points of agreement or balance sheet, all the while protesting he was no lawyer or accountant, and his vows were expressed in a very few words, but in characteristic and emphatic manner. The first few months I was with Addison, he spent most of the time in the office at 655th Avenue then there was a great deal of trouble with the life of lamps there and he disappeared from the office and spent his time largely in menlo park at another time there were a great deal of trouble with some of the details in construction of dynamo's and I had spent a lot of time at gower street which had been rapidly equipped with the idea of turning out bipolar polar dynamo electric machines direct connected to the engine the first of which went to paris and london while the next were installed in the old paris street station of edison electric illuminating company of new york just south of fluton street and the west side of the street edison devoted a great deal of his time to the engineering work in connection with the laying out of the first incandescent electric lighting system in new york apparently at that time to in the end of 1881 and spring of 1882, the most serious work was the manufacture installation of underground conducts in this territory. These conductors were manufactured by a electric tube company, which Edison controlled in a shop at 65 Washington Street, run by John Curiazzi. Half-run copper conductors were used, kept in place relatively to each other and in the tube, first of all by a heavy piece of cardboard, and later on by a rope, and then put in a 20-foot iron pipe, and a combination of asphaltone and linseed oil was forced into the pipe for insulation. I remember as a coincidence that the building was only twenty feet wide. These lengths of conductors were twenty feet six inches long, as the half round coppers extended three inches beyond the drag ends of the length of the pipe, and in one of the operations we used to take the length of tubing out of the window in order to turn it around. I was elected Secretary of the Electric Tube Company and was expected to look after its finances and It was in this position that my long intimacy with John Curiezi started at this juncture. A large part of the correspondence referred very naturally to electric lighting, emboding requests for all kinds of information, catalogs, prices, terms, etc and all these letters were turned over to the Lighting Company by Addison for attention. The company was soon swamped with propositions proposition for sale of territorial rights and with other negotiations, and some of these were accompanied by the offer of very large sums of money. It was the beginning of the electric light forward, which soon rose to sensational heights. Had the company accepted its cash offer some various localities, it could have gathered several millions of dollars at once in strategy, but... This was not at all in court with Mr. Edison's idea, which was to prove our actual experience the commercial value of the system, and then to license a central station commerce in large cities and towns. The apparent company taking the percentage of their capital for the license under the Edison patents, and contracting also for the supply of apparatus, lamps, etc. This left the remainder of the country open for the cash sale, of plans wherever requested his was prevailed and the wisdom of the policy adopted were seen in the swift establishment of addison companies in centers of population both great and small whose business was, has ever been a constant and growing source of income the parent manufacturing interest from first to last addison has been an exponent and advocate of the central station idea of distribution now so familiar to the public mind but still very far from being carried out to its logical conclusions in this instance, demands for isolated plants for lighting factories, mills, mines, hotels, etc. began to pour in, and something had to be done with them. This was a class of plant which the inquirers desired to purchase outright and operate themselves, usually because of remoteness for any possible source of general supply for a concard. It had not been Edison's intention to cater to this class of customer until his broad central station plan had been worked out and he has also discouraged this isolated plant within the limits of urban circuits. But these demands were so insistent it could not be denied, and it was deemed desirable to comply with it at once, especially as it was seen that the steady cure for supplies and renewers would benefit the new Edison manufacturing plants. After a very short trial, it was found necessary to create a separate organization for this branch of the industry, leaving the Edison Electric Light Company to continue under the original plan of operation as a parent, patent-holding and licensing company. Accordingly, a new and distinct corporation was formed called the Edison Company for Isolated Lightning, to which was issued a special license to sell and operate plants of a self-contained character. As a matter of fact, such work began in advance of almost every other kind, a small plant using the paper-carbon filament lamps, were furnished by Edison at the earnest solicitation of Mr. Henry Villard for a steamship Columbia in 1879, and it is amusing to know that Mr. Upton carried the lamps himself to the ship very tenderly and jealously, like fresh eggs, a market-garden basket. The installation was almost successful. and Another pioneer plant was that, equipped and started in January 1881 for Hintz and Ketcham. A new firm of lithographers and color painters who had previously been able to work only by day, owing to the difficulties in coloring printing by artificial light, a year later he, they said it is best substitute for daylight we have ever known almost as cheap. Mr. Edison himself described a rise instance in which the demands for isolated plants had to be met one night at sixty five he says Jim's garden in. We were very anxious to get into a printing establishment. I had caused a printer's composing case to be set up with the idea that if we could get editors and publishers in to see it, we should show them the advantages of the electric light. So ultimately, Mr. Banner came, and after seeing the whole operation of everything, he ordered Mr. Holland, general manager of the Herod, to light the newspaper office at upper once with electricity. Another instance of the same kind deals with the introduction of the light for purely social purposes. While at 65th Avenue, remarked Mr. Edison, I got to know Christine Hatter, then the largest decorator of the United States. He was a highly electoral man, and I loved to talk to him. He was always railing against the rich people for whom he did work, for their poor taste. One day Mr. W. H. Vanderbilt came to 65, saw the light, and decided that he would have his new house lighted with it this was one of the big big box houses on upper Fifth Avenue. He put the whole matter in the hands of his son-in-law, Mr. H. Mike Tombley, who was then in charge of the telephone department at the Western Union. Tombley closed a contract with us for a plant. Mr. Hurdle was doing the decoration and it was extraordinarily fine. After a while we got the engines and boilers and wires all done and the lights in precision before the house was quite finished and thought we could have an exhibit of the light. About eight o'clock in the evening we lit it up, and it was very good. Mr. Vanderbilt and his wife and some of his daughters came in, and were there a few minutes when a fire occurred. The large picture-gallery was in lined with silk cloth interwoven with fine metallic thread. In some manner two wires had got crossed with this tinsel, which became red-hot, and then-the whole mass was soon afire. and knew what was the matter, and ordered them to run down and shut off. And now burst into flame and died out immediately mr vanderbilt became hysterical and wanted to know where he came from we told her we had the plant in the cellar and then she learned we had a the boiler there she said she would not occupy the house she would not leave our boiler we had to take the whole installation out the houses afterward went on to the new york edison system the art was however very crude and raw and as there were no artisans in existence as mechanics or electricians who had had any knowledge of the practice there was inconceivable difficulty in getting such isolated plants installed, as well as wiring the buildings in the district to be covered by the first central station new york a night school was therefore founded at fifth avenue was put in charge of mr e h johnson fresh from his success in england the most available men for the purpose were of course those who had been accustomed to wiring for the simple electrical system then the vulgar telephones district messenger's calls bulgar alarms house am- annunciators etc and a number of these wired men were engaged and instructed patiently in the rudiments of the new arts by means of a blackboard and hour lessons Students from the technical schools and colleges were also eager recruits, for here was something that promised a career, and one that was especially luring to young youth because of its novelty. These beginners were also instructed in general engineering problems under the guidance of Mr. C. L. Clark, who was brought in from the Menlo Park Laboratory to assume charge of the engineering part of the common affairs. Many of these pioneer students and workmen become afterward large and successful contractors, or have felt positions of distinction as managers and superintendents of central stations. Possibly the electrical industry may not now attract as much adventurous seniors as it did then. for automobiles, aeronautics, and other new arts had come to the front in a quarter of the century to enlist in the enthusiasm of a young generation a mercury spirits but it is certain that at the period at which we write, Addison himself still under thirty-five, was the center of an extraordinary group of men, full of ever-resting and aspiring talent, to which he gave glorious opportunity. A very novel literary feature of the work ha- was the issuance of a building devoted entirely to the Addison lightning propaganda. Nowadays, the house organ, as it is called, has become a very hackneyed feature of industrial development confusing in its variety volume, and a somewhat doubtful adjunct to a highly perfected, widely circulating periodic panical press. But at that time, 1882, the bulletin of the Edison Electric Light Company, published in ordinary 12MO form, was distinctly new in advertising and possibly unique, as it is difficult to find anything that compared with it the bulletin was carried on for some years, until its necessary was removed by the development of other opportunities for reaching the public, and its pages serve now as a vivid and lively picture of the period to which its record applies. The first issue of January twelfth, eighteen 1882, was only four pages, but it dealt with the question of insurance. Plans at San Diego, Chile, and the de Genario, and the European Company with three million and five hundred thousand. Franks described the works in Paris, London, Strasbourg, and Moscow, the laying of over six miles of street mains in New York, a patent decision in favor of Edison, and the size of a safety catch wire. By April of 1882, the bulletin had attained a respectable size of sixteen pages, and in December it was a partly magazine for forty-eight. Every item it bears testimony to the rapid progress being made and by the end of eighteen eighty two it had seemed that no fewer than one hundred fifty three isolated Edison plants had been started in the united states alone with a capacity of twenty nine thousand and one hundred ninety two lamps moreover the new york central station had gone into operation starting at three p m on september fourth and at the close of eighteen eighty two there was lighting two hundred and twenty five houses wide for about five thousand lamps this apple story will be told in next chapter. The most interesting are the bulletin notes from the England, especially in regard to the brilliant exhibition given by Mr E H. Johnson at the Crystal Palace, at Sydenham, visited by the Duke and Duchess of Edinburgh, twice by the Dukes of Westminster, and Sutherland, by three hundred members of the Gas Institute, and by a number of delegations from cities, boroughs, etc. Describing this before the Royal Society of Arts, Sir W. H. Pierce, F. R. S. remarked, Many unkind things have been said of Mr. Edison, and his promises. Perhaps no one has been severer in this direction than myself. It is some gratification for me to announce my belief that he has at last solved the problem he set himself to solve, and to be able to describe to the Society the way in which he has solved it. Before the exhibition closed, it was visited by the prince and princess of Wales, now the deceased Edward VII, and the dowager queen Alexandra, and the princesses received from Mr. Johnson as a souvenir a tiny electric chandelier, fashioned like a banquet of fern leaves and flowers, the butts being some of the first miniature incandescent lamps ever made. The first item in the first bulletin board dealt with the fire question, and all through the successive issues— runs a series of significant items on the same subject. Many of them are aimed at gas, and there are several green summaries of death and fires due to gas leakers' exploitation. A tendency existed at the time to assume that electricity was altogether safe, while its opponents, predicting their attacks on arc-lighting casualties, insisted it was most dangerous. Edison's problem educating the public was rather difficult, for while his low-pressure direct current system has always been absolutely without danger to life, there has also been the undeniable fact that escaping electricity might cause a fire just as a leaky water pipe can flood a house. The important question had arisen, therefore, of certifying the fire underwriters as to the safety of this system. He had foreseen that there would be an absolute necessity for special devices to prevent fires from occurring by reason of any excessive current flowing in any circuits and several of his earliest detailed lightning inventions deal with the subject the insurance underwrites of new york and other parts of the country give a great deal of time and study to the question through their most expert representatives with the aid of edison and his associates other electric light companies are cooperating, and the knowledge of this gained was embodied in insurance rules to govern wiring for electric lighting, formulated during the later part of 1881, adopted by the New York Board of Fire Underwriters, January 12, 1882, and subsequently endorsed by the other boards in the various insurance districts, under temporary rulings however, a vast amount of work had already been done, but it was obviously that the industry grew there with the less and less possibility of supervision except though through such regulations insisting upon the use of the best devices and methods indeed the direct superintendent soon became unnecessary owing to the increasing knowledge and greater skill acquired by the installing staff and this system of education and was notably improved by many written by mr adams himself copies of this brochure are as scarce today as first folio Shakespeare's, and common prices equal to those of the other American first editions. The little book is the only known incursion of its authors into literature, if we except the brief articles he has written for technical papers and for the magazines. It contained what was at once a full elaborate and terse explanation of a complete isolated plant with diagrams of various methods of connection and operation and a carefully detailed description of every individual part its function its characteristics the remarkable success of those early years was indeed only achieved by following up with the chinese exactness the minute and intimate methods insisted upon by addison as to the use of the apparatus and devices employed it was a curious example of establishing standard practice while changing with kaleidoscopic rapidity all the elements involved he was true to ideal as to the polar star but was incessantly making improvements with, in every direction with an iron clasm that has often seemed ruthless and brutal he did not hesitate to sacrifice older devices the moment a new one came in sight that embodied real advance in securing effective results the process is heroic but costly nobody ever had a bigger trap heap than Addison, but who dare proclaim the process intrinsically wasteful if the losses could occur in the initial stages, and economies in all the later ones? With Addison in this introduction of his lighting system, the method was ruthless, but not reckless. At an early stage of commercial development, a standardizing committee was formed, consisting of the heads of all the departments, and to this body was instructed in the task of testing and criticizing all existing and proposed devices, as well as of considering the suggestions and complaints of workmen offered from time to time. This procedure was fruitful in two principal results, the education of the whole executive force in the technical details of the system, and a constant improvement in the quality of the Edison installations, both contributing to the rapid growth of the industrial for many years, Gower Street played an important part in Addison Fairs, being the center of all his manufacture of heavy machinery. But it was not in a desirable neighborhood, and owing to the rapid growth of the business soon became disadvantageous for other reasons. Addison tells of his frequent visits to the shops at night, with the escort of Jim Russell, a well-known detective who knew all the denizens of the places. We used to go out at night a little low place, an old lighthouse, eight feet wide and twenty feet long where we got a lunch at two or three o'clock in the morning it was the toughest kind of restaurant ever seen for the clam chowder, they used the same four clams during the whole season and the average number of flies per pie was seven that was by actual count as to the shops and the locality the street was lined with rather old buildings and poor tenements we had no much frontage as our business increased enormously, our quarters became too small, so we saw the district tamilator and asked him if we could not store castings and other things on the sidewalk. He gave us permission, told us to go ahead, and he would see it was all right. The only thing he required for this was that when the man was sent with a note from him, asking us for, to give him a job, he has to be put on. We had a hand-labor foreman, Big Jane, a very powerful Irishman. He could lift above half a ton. When one of the Tammy aspirants appeared, he was told to go right to work at $1.5 per day. The next day, he was told to off to lift a certain piss, and if the man could not lift, he was discharged. That made the Tammy men all safe. Jim could pick the piss up easily. The other man could not, and so we let him out. Finally, the Tammy leader cut a hot, as we were running a big engine lights, out on the sidewalk and he was afraid that we were carrying it a t- little too far. The lace were worked right out in the street and bounded through the windows for the shop. At last it became necessary to move from Gowork Street, and Mr Edison gives a very interesting account of the incident in connection with this transfer of the plan to Scanactory, New York. "'After our works ago where street go too small, "'we had labor troubles also. "'It seems I had rather a socialistic strain in me, "'and I raised the pay of the workmen twenty-five cents "'an hour above the prevailing rates of wages. "'Whereupon Ho and company, "'our new neighbors, complained at our doing this. "'I said I thought it was all right, "'but the men, having got a little more wages, "'thought they would try coercion and get a little more, "'as we were considered soft marks. "'Whereupon this truck at that time, that was critical however we were short of money for payrolls and we concluded it might not be so bad afterward and it would give us a couple of weeks to catch up so when the workmen went out they appointed a committee to meet us but for two weeks they could not find us so they became somewhat more anxious than we were finally they said they would like to go back we said all right and back they went it was quite a novelty to the men not to be able to find us when they wanted to and they didn't relish it at all. What with these troubles and lack of room, we decided to find a factory elsewhere, and decided to try the locomotive works at Skanecetati. It seemed that the people there had had a falling out among themselves, and one of the directors had started opposition works, but before he had completed all the buildings and putting, machinery, some compromise was made, and the works were for sale. We bought them very reasonably and moved everything there, These works were owned by me and my assistant until sold to Addison General Electric Company. At one time, we employed several thousand men, and since then, the work has been greatly expanded. At these new works, our orders were fair, far in excess of our capital to handle the business, and both Mr. Inzow and I were afraid we might get into trouble for lack of money. Mr. Inzow was then my business manager running the whole thing and therefore when mr henry villard and his syndicate offered to buy us out we concluded it was better to be sure than to be sorry so we sold out for a large sum villard was a very aggressive man with big ideas so i could never quite understand him he had no sense of humor i remember one time we were going out to the hansen river boat in, to inspect the works and with us was mr henderson our chief engineer, who was certainly the best recontour of funny stories I ever known. We sat at the tail end of the boat, and he started in to tell funny stories. Villard could not see a single point, and scarcely laughed at all, and Henderson became so disconcerted he had to give it up. It was the same way with Gold. In the early telegraph days, I remember going with him to see MacKay, and the impecuner's country editor. It was very funny, full of amusing and absurd situations, but go never smiled once. The formation of the Edison General Electric Company involved the consolidation of the immediate Edison manufacturing interest in electrolyte and power, with a capitalization of twelve million dollars, now a relatively modest sum, but in those days the amount was large the combination caused a great deal of newspaper comment as to such a coinage of brain power next step came with the creation of the great general electric company of today, a combination of the edison thomson hansen and brush lining interest in the manufacture which to this day maintains the ever glowing plants at harrison lane schenectady and their employs from twenty to twenty five thousand people End of chapter 15 Recording by Nelly Xi'an, China